Welcome to the Addy Hour, where we talk brain science, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. Having attended one of Dr. Addy's town halls, I can tell you that it's vital information for anyone living in America right now. It was the first time in a very, very long time where I felt like all of me could show up, each parts of my identity. I'm your host, Dr. Nee Addy. My friend, Dr. Nee Addy, is such a unique person who is both scientifically astute, understands the human soul and the mind. At the same time, he has compassion and empathy for the masses. He's been nothing but a blessing to my congregations and my friends. It was the first time I felt like it was safe to talk about issues that are usually not talked about, like mental health and faith and wrestling with your identity. By the end, I walked out feeling so much more validated and hopeful. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Addy Hour. I'm grateful to be able to continue to lead these conversations and discussions. And I think this is going to be another great discussion today as well. Today, we're going to be focusing on the topic of trauma and really digging into the science of trauma. And so I'm thrilled to be able to welcome today's two guests. I've been really eager to have this joint conversation with both of them, an extended conversation. So I'm grateful that they've been willing to jump in. So our first guest is Dr. Bianca Jones-Marlin. Dr. Bianca Jones-Marlin is an assistant professor of psychology and of neuroscience at Columbia Zuckerman Institute. And I have to say one shocking thing about this today is this is actually our first time interacting. And I say that shocking because I'm definitely familiar with her work, both her scientific work and her outreach work in the community. And I've heard her name for years from lots of mutual colleagues and mutual friends. Uh, so I feel honored that we actually have this time to finally interact. And I'm really grateful that she's been willing to jump into the conversation. But just to mention briefly, Bianca has done stellar work as a, as a scientist throughout her career, even going back to graduate school when she was focused on oxytocin and looking at its effects on maternal behavior. Uh, one of the other things that I really appreciate about Bianca is the work that she's been doing recently, really looking at these transgenerational effects and how experiences in one generation can influence the brains and the experiences of subsequent generations and offspring. So I know that's something we're also gonna be talking about as well. Also deeply appreciative for the work that she does around gender equity and racial disparities within the scientific community and within community at large. So grateful to have Bianca on the program today with us. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Our second guest is Dr. Carrie Ressler. Dr. Ressler is a scientist and a physician at McLean Hospital and also at Harvard Medical School. He's a chair of psychiatry at McLean, also the chief of the Division of Depression and Anxiety Disorders and the chief scientific officer. So just a few, a few titles there. Uh, obviously, someone who's deeply invested in this area as well. As I mentioned, he's a scientist and a physician and has done a lot of work really thinking about the molecular processes in the brain that are important for emotion and fear and anxiety, but also does human genetic work as well. And so he's been able to bridge those two worlds very effectively. And I have to say that one of the things that I'm really deeply appreciative with him is I had the opportunity to hear him give a talk at a scientific conference years ago. Hadn't met him yet, but I was really deeply impressed by his commitment to his work 
specifically the work that he was doing in many marginalized communities around aspects and things like trauma and the effects of just the experiences that happen in those communities and how these things can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. He's been thinking about things like um, susceptibility to substance use and aspects of violence. And for me, I was really just, um, to, be, to be honest, I was completely, I don't want to say enamored, but surprised to see someone of your stature that was so invested in the community. And I know a lot of that was done through the Grady Project. Um, he was at Emory for 18 years and was leading that project. I'm sure we'll hear more about that today. But just deeply grateful that you've been doing this work for so long. And I'm grateful that both of you are willing to come on here together and have this conversation with one another. So welcome to the program, Dr. Ressler. Thanks so much, Dr. Addy. It's really a pleasure. Really looking forward to the conversation. Um, and clearly, this is something that is a topic of interest to us as a society. I know that even in my own experiences, I, as I've been hosting different events over the years, it's a phrase that comes up much more frequently than, than in the past. So people will talk about you know, the fact that trauma can be passed on at the molecular level. That's something that I think we can really unpack in this conversation. But even before we go there, I do like to often just check in with guests and see how you're both doing. Obviously, there's a lot that's happening in our society right now. We're in the middle of the Chauvin trial and all the emotions that brings up. We're continuing to deal with all the racial injustices. We're seeing the continuation and up, upsurge of anti-Asian anti racism. And so I think it's a lot for us to deal with. And I would just like to see how people are doing in the midst of everything that's going on. So Bianca, if you'd be willing to jump in and start at that at that place. Yes, I um, you're, you're, I think we're starting off on um, with a very uh, heavy and loaded uh, a question. Like, I think we usually passively say like, oh, we're doing great. Um, I can't say I'm doing 100%. Um, as you ask that question, I like, pinch my fingers. I don't get too emotional. It's a lot. And it's very loaded right now. I don't think that everyone is always aware of that. Mm -hmm. And so I think for some of us who it affects, or maybe... I would hope that it would affect everyone equally, um, but for those who seem to feel a stronger pull um, towards social injustice, it, it is a little bit hard. So it's been, it's been a rough um, a rough few days, I would say. Yeah, well, I definitely appreciate your honesty and sharing that as well, because I think that that is part of what we're trying to do here, not to just have that passive. Oh, everything's fine. Everything's fine. You know. And, and there's there's a reason that we we go to that place. I mean, there is a level of vulnerability that comes, and we have to know that people are actually willing willing and ready to listen. Um, but here, I think it's so important to just to just be honest, um, and not to detour too early in the conversation. But I think for many of us who are in educational spaces, is that's important for our students and trainees too, to not <laughs> pretend that we're doing better than we are, and to create the space for them to be able to say, okay, they're also struggling, and then it actually builds the community. Um, as well. Uh, so I appreciate you. Just, exactly. Yeah, not just being involved in my trainings. Yeah. Yeah. So important. What about you, Carrie? How are you, how are you managing with everything so far? Yeah, I think, you know, it's been um, quite a year in so many ways um, from all of the, you know, I think from the, from the racial justice movements and Black Lives Matter movements, it, I think, you know, for those of us who, and in many ways, those of us in mental health, I think are eternally optimistic. <laughs> it feels like, you know, maybe this is the time. It feels like, you know, since, you know, at every step along the last 200 years, and certainly through the 60s and civil rights movements and through the 70s, kept feeling like, okay, we're, we're making progress now. And, and hopefully we are, but there's certainly many, many places of systemic racism and, and um, institutionalized racism that we haven't, haven't figured it out yet. And I grew up in Mississippi and, um, 
So there's a, there's a, you know, I think we, as, as those of us who, you know, I think all of us have, have different levels of privilege, but certainly, you know, very aware of how I and we as, a, as, as leadership need to do better. And um, so I think it's such a call to action. And, and I just hope that we can really make, make it matter in more, so more important ways this time. So thank you for hosting this and for this conversation, because this is, I think, a, a wonderful way to explore these issues in a much more deep way. Mm. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. And I, I appreciate your your acknowledgement of the privilege that comes with that too. And the way you're saying both privilege and responsibility to not just have privilege, but to actually take steps to move forward. And at the same time, it sounds like you're trying to be, I mean, in a lot of ways, you're both being realistic. There are aspects of pain. That's real. We can't avoid that. There are aspe aspects of optimism, but there are also aspects of, well, we've done this before and let's not get stuck in that same cycle of just kind of repeating the lip service and just going back to the way things were. Um, so I think that's so, that's so important. And I appreciate your acknowledgement of what we're trying to do with this, this podcast as well, to make sure that we can really talk about the things that aren't always talked about and just kind of get, I don't want to say buried under the service, but get left kind of in that space of, well, we don't really want to touch that. And Bianca, I know you've done a lot of that, you know, over the last year as well. Um, Carrie, I know through our interactions, that's been a focus for you. So again, I'm just grateful, grateful to both of you for the way that you're pulling all those things together. It's not easy, not easy in any sense of the word. So Carrie, you hinted a little bit about your background. I did want to dig in a little bit deeper there and actually ask both of you how you got to this place in your lives of being deeply invested in neuroscience research, um, especially for those in our audience who aren't scientists. I'm sure they'd be curious to hear why, why are the two of you so deeply invested in this, this area? So Carrie, if you could talk a little bit about your journey uh, I guess both to medicine and to neuroscience research. How did you come to that place? Sure. Well, um, just um, sort of a brief background. So I grew up in Mississippi um, from multiple generations in the South and first generation college um, from a single parent household. Um, so while, although I was white, uh, my you know, mom grew up in segregationist Mississippi and her, and her best friends were black in mm -hmm. where she lived in the country. And so really heard the stories of, of what that was like. Um, so it was, it was always very aware, you know, I had a very progressive uh, mother in, um, you know, early 70s Mississippi. Um, and so was, you know, very aware of racial injustice mm -hmm. from there. So that side, and then I was also, you know, working in a grocery store and, um, you know, everything else to just get by. And fortunately, I had great math teachers and great teachers and, and had the opportunity to, to do well. And I was sort of a child of the first generation of computers, of, of you know, computers. Um, so I um, was applying to college and my math teacher said, you should look at MIT. And I'm like, what is MIT? And <laughs> <laughs> so I was fortunate enough um, to get into MIT and I went there to be a computer scientist, I thought. Um, um, I, I'm still convinced that I got into MIT because I was a token Mississippi person, but I, I, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but along the way, um, I, I was really exposed for the first time to molecular biology and neuroscience and just absolutely fell in love with it. And, mm. um, with, you know, in the 80s, seeing the sort of molecular generate revolution that you could really engineer biology seemed much more exciting to me than engineering um, program, computers. Mm. So long story short, um, did that was then um, on the fence between um, neuroscience and medicine. I had been worked in emergency departments and worked in medicine and was really wanted to give back to the community, but loved research. So I was fortunate enough to get into an MD-PhD program and stay in Boston at Harvard. And um, that's where I met Linda Buck. I was, I was doing research. Um, I was looking, doing my rotations for what I was going to do my PhD in and um, couldn't quite find the right one. I want to do plasticity. 
um, and learning and memory. And there weren't many people at Harvard at the time. And then somebody said, you should come hear this job talk um, by this Buck person. And so I went not knowing anything about smell in my life. And um, Linda Buck and Richard Axel, who Bianca, you'll hear from Bianca, um, had just discovered the odor receptor gene family. And I just opened my eyes to a whole way that one could use molecular tools mm -hmm. to understand a sensory system. And I really, for the last 30 years since then, been you know using molecular tools to understand systems neuroscience questions. Um, and as we get into the later discussion about some of the intergenerational stuff, it was it was that background and olfaction um, that was really exciting. So from there, did a postdoc at Emory in Atlanta um, and moved to Atlanta for a number of reasons. Um, it's a great program. My wife was from there. Um, we had a baby, <laughs> all of those things. Um, and Grady um, Hospital is one of the main teaching hospitals in Atlanta. And I really wanted to give back and, and train at Grady. Um, and so while both working with Michael Davis there on fear, um, and he was one of the founders of the amygdala systems. I started using molecular biology approaches to understanding the amygdala and fear. Also was a, um, approached, um, began to understand what PTSD was in the veter veterans populations. And in my work, uh, and as a psychiatrist at Grady, really saw that trauma was everywhere and yet we weren't paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. And so that really began our 20 year journey into understanding trauma in the inner city. And since then we've um, interviewed almost 13,000 people coming to Grady Hospital just for general medical care. Mm -hmm. In that process, I've learned a lot about trauma exposure, just the enormity of it, the enormity of PTSD and depression and comorbidity. So really, I've spent a lot of my years in trying to understand by, by understanding the medical model and neuroscience approach to trauma, can that really help us have better interventions and improvements? So, so that's me. I've otherwise been married for 30 years, have a couple dogs and three boys, and um, <laughs> I'm very grateful for um, the life I've had. Thank you. That's great. Well, thanks for sharing the journey. I mean, even going all the way back to the beginning, that was very impressive, by the way, the way you succinctly encapsulated so many aspects of your <laughs> life story. Um, but I appreciate that. I think it's helpful for people to just get the uh, the entire context too. I mean, even going back to your family history and your first generation experiences and the opportunities that you're able to to take advantage of. Definitely appreciate that. And that will tie back and think even more deeply about some of the work that you're currently doing doing now as well. Um, but just grateful Thank for you. the investment that you've made in a lot of ways. Thank you. And Bianca, what about you? I know you shared some of your story in other settings before, both in terms of your scientific mm -hmm. journey um, and your family background growing up and, and your thoughts about teaching, how all that led you to this to this place. So curious to have you expand on that a little bit here as well. Yes, I'm, I'm so happy to expand. I'm I'm a little bit overwhelmed at the amazing parallel between Carrie and myself. Mm. Um, I don't think like just taking a, a brief like look at us, any there's anything that's similar outside of like we're both gray, um, hair color wise, but <laughs> I I'm I'm so taken aback. So um mm. and so thank you so much for sharing, especially like some aspects um that I have found as I as I continue on in science that are sometimes hard to share like um openly, like struggles coming from a single family home, coming from like maybe a low SES. I've been very hesitant to share these things. It's only as of recently that I realized that in me sharing this, I'm inspiring people who don't know that they assume differently about me that like, mm -hmm. oh, they can actually do this. It's possible, not hard, but possible. So I am, I am New Yorker through and through, born and raised. Um, I'm very proud of that. So I can't pronounce words like draw. It's totally <laughs> fine. You say it too often in science and everyone's always confused. It's the draw, it's fine. Um, so yes, I'm from, I'm from New York, uh, born in Queens. And um, I'm first-generation American on one side. My mother was born in Guyana, South America. My dad is a New Yorker through and through for a few generations. Um, although I do have family from right outside of Birmingham. My, grand my grandmother was born right outside of Birmingham. So one side is Black American, the other side is Guyanese. And uh, I 
from my, my perspective, I had like a extremely happy and amazing childhood. And I do think that it's only in retrospect that I realized how uh, like uniquely set up my childhood was and inspiring what I do now. Um, so I grew up in a, uh, my parents, my biological parents, um, but they were foster parents as well. So I have foster siblings and adopted siblings, um, which allowed me um, insight into other people's world and life without ever, like, I'm so thankful uh, without ever having to um, experience it because a lot of these things are associated with trauma. If you are in the foster care system, it's because you have um, a, a caregiver who wasn't able to live up to that definition of caregiver and in no shame associated with the caregiver. And I feel that very strongly. And that's also why I study parental behavior because we can't always say it's like the parent's issue or the child's issue. There's a lot of things involved with that. Um, but I was able to get a little bit of insight into how it is to live in a home that wasn't like mine. Um, and I think that really motivated me to go into education. So I first started off as a teacher. Um, it's amazing that Carrie said, someone said, go check out MIT. And you're like, what is MIT? Um, I, I started going into education and I saw a sign that said like, do you want, I'm um, in college. It says, I went to St. John's in Queens. I literally have never, I haven't left New York. <laughs> My undergrad, grad school, postdoc is all here. Um, and uh, I saw like a, a flyer that said like, you can go to uh, get a uh, free tuition. If you work in a lab, I'm like, that sounds great. I was an education major. Um, and I started doing fungal genetics and it entered me into like the world of like um, science. Like they asked like, uh, you know, what does a PhD stand for? And I was like, I didn't know what it stood for. And like, I learned more about PhD. And in uh, presenting that data at a conference called Abrocrims, it's the annual biomedical research conference for minority students. I had um, someone come up to me, a dean. He's like, oh, you should check out my school, um, MIT for a summer program. Being from New York, I know MIT, I know NYIT, New York Institute of Technology, which is like a little school in my town. I was like, I guess if I want to go to Massachusetts, sure, I'll check it out. (laughs) It was that same year that a movie came out called 21, which is about like some brilliant MIT uh, uh, mathematicians who go to um, Vegas and like they game the system and win a whole lot of money. And I was like, I knew some of the people in that group. Did you? Sorry, of course. <laughs> MIT is a big deal. Oh, I should I should fill this application out. I did not know. That at all. Oh my um, so that was one of my forays into um, into neuroscience. I worked in a lab there for the summer and learned more about neuroscience. And I think during that the path of being part of this program, which is for um, first generation student college students, which I was the first in my family to go to college and graduate, first generation Americans, uh, low SES, all of the things I, I checked off. Um, uh, the program that got me that introduced me to, to this uh, research really allowed me to align the fact that I loved teaching. I loved the concepts of learning. I wanted to understand how environmental factors like stress, like trauma made it different for my siblings to navigate school. And for me, like I was a pretty solid straight A student. I knew my siblings had the capabilities to do that, but I just think environmental factors did not allow them to focus on that because there was so much more going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so within getting the science component, the learning, and then being introduced to neuroscience at the, the summer programs I went to, I decided I want to study learning and memory as opposed to being the teacher. And I did teach seventh grade, 10th grade, and AP biology for a year before I entered into grad school. Um, and it was a, a, for any graduate students listening, I, I had a very interesting graduate school career. Like I did five rotations. Most people do three. I'm in a lab to find where you want to go. Um, and the fifth rotation was with with uh, uh, Robert Frumke, Dr. Robert Frumke, 
And he was like, you can do some of this stuff, some of this stuff. I have a slight interest in like maternal behavior. And I was like, oh, that's me. That's what I want to do. I want to study maternal behavior. And it led to the oxytocin project um, that a large percentage of his lab is now looking at. Um, and similarly, when it came to looking into my postdoc, um, I had a few offers. Um, the, the, my PhD work um, was very well received and we found some pretty amazing groundbreaking um, results uh, that led me to offers to start my own lab prior to even doing a postdoc. And so I looked into um, those but uh, meeting Richard Axel, who um, I wound up doing my postdoc with, who is also here at Columbia, who won the Nobel Prize with Linda Buck, who <laughs> Carrie did his, uh, Carrie worked with. Um, he a convinced me that New York is where where I want to stay. He's really good at that. He's also a New Yorker. Um, and B that I can learn a new facet. I also didn't think I would be interested in odor. Um, my former work was listen uh, was uh, um, auditory, um, so listening. It's a beautiful stimulus. You play a tone, you see a response in the brain, like humidity doesn't change it you can wear perfume and like odor is very different um but the questions you can ask with a beautiful system like the olfactory system just opened my mind to like and my eyes to so many aspects and the fact that we can associate trauma and memory with things like what grandma was cooking in the kitchen and the smell of the apple pie just it excites me as to what, where, we can, where we can take this field. And so now I'm assistant professor at Columbia um, studying how trauma is passed down through generations and how parents play a role in this and how environmental factors like smell and sound and taste and the senses take in the world and keep those memories in and pass those memories on. Wow, that's, that's so uh, inspiring and humbling at the same time to hear you share your story. And I'm struck, I mean, you said this yourself already, but how many intersections and overlaps you and Carrie have even the interjection about the MIT folks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's just, wow. So scientifically and otherwise. And I think, I mean, that's the beauty of, of the work we do sometimes, I think too. And to be honest, I think it's, it also speaks to the importance of sometimes us having conversations outside of our specific scientific question and discipline. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, we all get really excited about that, but there's so much more sometimes I think that we don't have the chance to appreciate uh, because we are stuck in that kind of framework about only speaking about right. things in one way. So obviously that's a, maybe that's a self-serving comment because that's one of the things that I'm really trying to do on the Addy Hour too, just to be able to pull in so many different topics and make sure that we can unearth all those pieces as well. So definitely appreciate you, Bianca, sharing sharing those components and, and Carrie as well. There's so many different directions that we could go. I mean, to be honest, this almost feels like it could be a three-hour conversation. Yeah, and, uh, We're not going to do that. But. <laughs> But one thing that I did want to pull out um, from something you both mentioned, too, is just, you know, how you got interested, and Bianca, you touched on this already, too, but about trauma specifically, um, just because clearly that's something that has a lot of societal implications, I think, in a lot of ways in the last year, as a broader society, both of you have been thinking about this already, but we're starting to pay much more attention to that than we have in the past. Um, so curious to hear even a little bit more about how you got invested in that. And then if you could also just unpack this idea of the cellular molecular ways that trauma gets passed on. What does that, what does that actually mean? Because that, that phrase, as I mentioned, gets thrown around a lot. Um, and I think it's, it's good that people are paying attention to it, but I think it's also important that we really have a good understanding. And to be honest, that's an onus I think we as scientists have to communicate that. Um, so Carrie, if we could go ahead and start with you. Well, as you say, we could probably talk for 10 hours on those two topics. So I'll try to give the very short version and we can dive deeper. <laughs> um, so for me, um, I was interested in trauma as a psychiatrist who wanted to 
combine, so really two sides, one, the intellectual side. I found that um, our understanding in the late 90s of the amygdala and the brain circuit regions that encode the fear and, and threat responses were some of the best understood brain circuits that we had in mammals. And so as, I, as a physician scientist, I really wanted to study something that I could both understand more mechanistically in an animal system and understand in something relevant, relevant to humans. So I was very attracted to PTSD as a purely intellectual question. But I also really, you know, I went into medicine and wanted to do something related to helping people. But um, from both my Mississippi and earlier backgrounds and seeing racial injustice, I really wanted to do something that could eventually um, help the community. Mm. I knew I wasn't going to be a policy wonk. I wasn't really who I was. But if I could do something scientifically that would speak to community issues, that would be a lovely way to combine them. And for me, started when my eyes were opened up working at Grady as a resident, as an intern, the first year of residency, and was interviewing people in our general. Um, so, so Grady Hospital is the main receiving area, the main trauma hospital for all of Atlanta's five plus million people. And they're also the main psychiatric receiving facility. And, uh, you know, you'd be thrown in there as an early resident, not really knowing much of anything, and you supposed to interview people and make decisions. And um, what I found first is that nobody quite fit our different diagnostic criteria. Everybody, you know, there was substance abuse, there was depression, there was suicidality, there was psychosis, and all of it was kind of mixed up. And certainly substance was underlying a lot of it. But having come from the VA and seen the, the PTSD and the veterans, to me, it was very obvious. As soon as we started asking people about trauma, it was everywhere. And it was almost like in the... 1800s, we called syphilis kind of the great mimicker. And I think trauma is kind of the great mimicker for it, whether it's down medical comorbidities or psychiatric comorbidities or, or other components. So I just, I was fascinated with it. And so for me, being able to look at trauma from both the basic side, understand PTSD and start to really help understanding give voice to civilian trauma and in at-risk communities and how that also speaks to the cycle of violence and the cycle of risk were all fascinating to me in humans. So maybe I'll pause there and then we can maybe do a second round when we start talking about the details of the intergenerational work. Yeah, yeah that sounds great. Uh, thanks for just sharing that context as well. I think that's really helpful for people to know what motivated you. And, and, and it's inspiring again to hear that you were paying attention to what to what you saw in front of you. I think that's something that comes up in a lot of our conversations too, especially as we go through the mental health, whether the providers are basically putting their categories onto people or listening to people's stories. And it sounds like in a lot of ways you were watching and listening to the stories and the experiences that you saw in front of you and saying, okay, what is that leading me to rather than the other way around? I think that's a really important. Yeah, just to interject, just to follow that up, you know, the number of people that we would see with diagnosis of, you know, there's certainly plenty of schizophrenia and bipolar and severe depression, but there's a lot of folks with very severe trauma and underlying PTSD that I think are either misdiagnosed or they're putting their priorities in the wrong place. Yeah. Yeah. Really important. And again, a whole nother conversation, which we may pull in later, mm -hmm. but even the disparities that come along that as well, yeah. even in terms of racial disparities. And, and black people are much more likely yeah, exactly. to be diagnosed with severe mental illness yeah. than, um, than being, than identifying the underlying trauma. Yeah. So Bianca, to pivot back to you, we've pulled out a lot, but you shared some of that already from your, you know, your childhood experiences too, but were there other components that, that pulled you into this work or things that are kind of ongoing for you? I think it's, it's, we as scientists, we walk the line between what do the data say and what do we know as humans? Like what, mm. what do we intuit? Mm. And the data, we're still parsing this out. Um, we're still ironing out what mechanisms could be, and that's okay, right? Like, mm -hmm. I need to have a job, so I'm, I'm fine with that. We don't, we don't have all the answers yet, but we know as humans, when we think about um, finding a partner, a lot of people ask, like, what kind of family do they come from? What have they gone through? What are their parents like? We know that certain elements 
are imprinted into, into people. We know that people who have gone through war, we just intuit that potentially there could be some, something that, that lingers. I come from a military family. My brother serves, serves in the United States military, um, maybe. And there's certain elements when he was you know, out and he came back that we would wanna ask to see how he was feeling. I didn't need data to know that if you came from an abusive household, if you were sexually or physically or emotionally abused, that that has ramifications. I didn't need to look at your the, the epigenetic changes um, because we know these things as humans. And so I think that in understanding that we get this as humans, I'm confident that as we get this, the data will come r- r- rolling in. Um, and so I think that's that's what I try to go back to when, when stuff is hard in, in the lab and we can't, we can't really put our finger on what it is that we're looking for. I just look at society. Like we know these things as, as human beings. And so there's gotta be an underlying written script there for the, the behavioral outputs that we see. Yeah, I think that's really important in so many ways. And you're right, that line, I'm glad you brought it up because I think we sometimes we walk that line without acknowledging that we walk that line. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that for both of you, that might be something that's talked about more often than in other circles, but I think it's a principle that a lot of us should be thinking about more explicitly um, as well. And I even, you know, even the pieces that, that you pulled out about how to really think about the data versus what we know inherently in front of us is really important. I'm curious if you could expand a little bit on this idea of who's, what's often characterized as who's at fault. Because you hinted at that too, because you hinted at the yeah. fact that if you know, you know, your brother is coming back from a difficult situation, you all have some grace in how you're thinking about what experiences he had. But I think a lot of times when we're talking about underserved communities, there's this narrative that gets framed that, well, you also just pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Why are you, you know, putting the fault on the victims in a sense. And I'm just curious how you think about that, both in terms of society wise and in terms of your research. Um, Bianca, if you want to just expand on that a little that's, bit. Of course, yes, that's a very important question. And I, I fully support pulling yourself up from your bootstraps if you have boots. And I think that's mm-hmm. the issue. Um, where I, when I speak about, or when I think about um, like my, my experience growing up and my foster siblings, and I want to make sure I'm very clear, like I'm not speaking from them or their mm-hmm. perspective. I'm speaking as myself who had two loving, caring parents. Um, and the things I learned from them. I don't ever want to be their voice, but I do want to share my experience with them. Mm-hmm. Um, they came from abusive households where their parents tried the best they could to manage their children under the stresses they were, stressors they had after coming from abusive households. And so it's not as if like this just magically erupted in like their lineage. This is generation upon generation upon generation of suppression, of abuse, of, 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 of you know, substance abuse. But these aren't things that we can just target to one person because, and I, for all I know, like some of the people who came from these households who became my siblings could also then have parent, have children and have to grapple with the way that they parent their kids and what they learned. And we see this aligned in, in a lot of our research. There is a rodent research that's shown that if you have a, a mother who um, smells like peppermint um, and then you have a, and the, her offspring and you shock her offspring while she's next to the mom with peppermint, even though the animal felt shock, so it felt pain surrounding the mom, it still prefers peppermint. And so there's something innate about saying like, although I know that this is not a good situation, I do wanna go back to this parent. I do wanna go back to, to, my, to my mother. Um, 
And how much of that can be parsed out society, societally by saying like, your mother was horrible, you cannot be like this person. Your father was horrible, you cannot be like this person. And like having the pull to love. And so I, I do find that something that I, it's hard to parse out in the science because you want something clean, crisp, like the data say this. But there are emotions involved with parenthood. There are emotions involved with, with, um, with generations to come. Uh, and what that looks like in, in, you know, in rodents, which is what I use to study my um look at my question is it's hard to not to anthropomorphize that yeah that's a really perfect yeah. example go ahead Gary. yeah sorry and it's beautifully said bianca you know it's kind of bringing it back to the big story and i really see that that's so much an issue with institutional racism i think you can even have people meaning well at top level there's you know they don't understand we don't understand but there's just so many false equivalencies that wait you know doesn't matter what happened to you when you're early. We're now giving you school opportunity. We're giving you, you know, some food. We're giving you a head start. We're giving you a job. Why, why aren't things better? And there's this, this just lack of appreciation that these things that we know are critical for our developmental, like you said, but even with the topic of this, potentially even intergenerational, that we've got to do more. You can't just have a head start program. You can't just have a job opportunity. If if the building the emotional building blocks aren't there, in addition to the the new opportunities, it's not going to work. So you, you don't have the boots, even though it may look like you have them. So there's that there's false equivalencies of okay, we'll give them now, but they're just it's not the same, and we haven't as a society learned that or figured out what to do about that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so important, and I, I I'm appreciative of the fact that you, you're pulling that out to both of you that we have we can see those society wise um, as well. We don't have to wait for all the data to know that that's true. But even at the same time, Kerry, if you could just expand on what the data has started to show us about how those processes are actually happening in terms of what Bianca already brought up. Sure. So, um, you know, one of the things, so sort of brief, two brief stories that we've been most excited about is this concept of epigenetics. So I think most people are, are familiar with the idea of genetics. That's what you're born with, your DNA, it's in your cells. And, you know, essentially we all come from a mix of our moms and our dad's genes. But over the last couple of decades, it's really understood that there's this concept of epigenetics, how the genes can be altered. And data for a number of years have suggested that developmental trauma, be that um, neglect, abuse, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, that's more associated with all bad things, basically, <laughs> whether it be, whether it be um, you know, medical, psychological, substance abuse, risk, et cetera. And there, we're starting to understand that, see marks both in your blood and in the brain, the ways in which the genes have been altered via this early developmental experience through this epigenetic term. And so that's one way that we're starting to understand how the biology of development may hold on and be kind of stuck there during adulthood. Um, and one, for example, that we've been involved with a lot is a gene that's involved in the stress regulatory system. And epigenetic changes in some of these genes alter how the body and the mind respond to stress. And that looks very different if you've had childhood trauma versus not, and likely very much tunes the stress system in the body and the brain very differently in adulthood. And then the work where Bianca and I met and, and, and share scientific excitement is um, we both start, you know, in the olfactory system, I've been working for a few years and then had transitioned over to studying fear and amygdala. But uh, for all the reasons Bianca said, the olfactory system is so fascinating. And one of which is because we can structure, we have molecular tools that allow us to see the structural organization of how smell works in the nose and in the brain, part of the brain called the olfactory bulb. And we found, based on really inspired by work by many scientists over decades, where they showed that if you had early experiences, it changed the structure of the brain and you had different sensory systems. And we were able to show that if you even had an adult 
because of the what we know now is that there's turnover constantly in the olfactory system. That's why if somebody has a cold or COVID now and loses smell, eventually it comes back because the cell the cells grow back. So that suggests that there's this ongoing plasticity in the in the olfactory system that may be different than other sensory systems. And so we found that if you train an animal to um, be afraid of, so you shock them with a cherry smell, that the sense specific molecular markers of cherry actually increase in the nose and increase in the brain. Mm. So you have an increased representation and an increased behavioral sensitization of that cherry. And the molecular mechanisms of that are starting to be understood. And a brilliant postdoc named Brian Diaz in the lab wanted to look at this in broader ways and basically almost randomly, <laughs> but he, he planned it. I was very surprised, but found that if you train, if you shock, basically traumatize a father before they give birth to this cherry smell, the offspring actually are more sensitive to cherry, have more representation of cherry in the nose and more representation of cherry in the brain. And he showed that in lots of different ways that even if you just take the sperm of the father after they've been traumatized and do what we call in vitro fertilization, take it to a different place, no behavioral interaction at all, the next generation still had these molecular and structural and behavioral marks of increased sensitization to this trauma smell, suggesting that at least one sensory system, the olfactory system, is able to hold on to somehow some of this olfactory information that is important across across generations and that has so many implications that we can talk about thanks so my way of getting to know bianca was i heard these rumors that there was somebody from the axolab who'd replicated some of the work and we all got very excited and i spent you know, a year and a half being anxiously awaiting to meet her to hear more about it so yeah i mean that speaks to the scientific endeavor too and i'm curious actually to even piggyback on that and see just to hear from both of your perspectives how did people first respond to the work <laughs> i'll let carrie answer that because I, I heard that in parallel as i was making a decision as to what i was going to um focus my postdoctoral work on and um, my postdoctoral advisor was like are you sure you want to study this because i know that <laughs> <laughs> run away <laughs> but it goes back to what i was saying what we know these things like intuitively and as humans but it's so hard for, to convince people that the data of what we're showing is like is is relevant. So I'll let Carrie answer that question because I'm. Yeah, involved. I mean, the brief answer is skepticism, lots and lots of skepticism. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, other work by people like um, Isabel Mansui and Tracy Bale in, in Germany and Maryland who have done other great work in showing intergenerational stress. The problem is the stress system's really complicated and it's kind mm -hmm. of nuanced and there's not really very specific molecules all the time. And I think what's the olfactory system has going for us and why this um, story from all of our groups um, is so powerful is that we do have these very precise markers. And you can you have these molecular markers for one smell versus another smell. So you have this built-in control to show that you can have this inheritance that affects one smell system, but not the not so it's one odor, but not another. Mm -hmm. And that allowed us to overcome it. But but all the skepticism certainly made the paper better and made us do a lot more of the you know, gazillion extra experiments to really show that this is a real phenomenon. We don't know what it means, but we know it's in the sperm and we think it's epigenetics. Um, but one one kind of fun example is so this comes back to this historical thing of Darwin versus Lamar. What do you inherit versus what can you change? Mm. Um, and everybody was saying, oh, this is the is, and we threw that out. But the problem is we didn't know about epigenetics and we didn't know that probably both are true at some level. And um, we were trying not to, we were trying to avoid that issue and just talk about the data. And then Nature Neuroscience, where it came out, without telling us, put Lamarck on the cover of our <laughs> 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 so I was like, well, we were trying to avoid that issue. Yeah, no choice. Not. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it works sometimes. Yeah, that's really helpful, I think, to know. Now, obviously, it wasn't easy at the time, but to know the context too and the pushback. Um, how would you say, and maybe Bianca, you can you can talk yeah. about this. 
did was that mirrored on the societal side? Like how does society as a collective respond to the to the work? I think that comes back to our job as scientists by taking the data and saying that these are the data that we have. We're in the process of interpreting them. And I think that comes back to, I, I don't think I would say I know this comes back to the fact that if I'm flipping through a paper or I'm flipping through a book or I, I'm, I'm not a scientist, I'm just, I'm just reading like New York Times or something of the sort. And I see you've had trauma in your past and now you're ruined for life because these epigenetic markers have now been ingrained in your system. And so you're just like, you're out of luck. Um, I would be pretty offended and I'd be angered because this person, this scientist doesn't know who I am. They don't know how I deal with things. I think that's the part that we need to Mm. definitely highlight. We don't know exactly what we're looking at. We could be looking at something that could align with PTSD, increased sensitivity to a non-threatening cue. We could be looking at resilience, the ability of the nose to then sense an odor that in the past was traumatizing but now I'm warned about it earlier because I have more neurons that are going to say, hmm, or learn more quickly. And so the data remain the same, but those two explanations are how we interpret the data. Mm. And I, 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 like my goal as a scientist is to take the, the, the data that we have and really interpret it in mul- with multiple facets in the way that benefits society. Mm. And so I'm very hesitant when we speak about like trauma, just trauma, trauma, because that could be really traumatizing, especially for someone like me, who's like a black woman, first generation SES. Like, I don't want to just swallow the fact that like, okay, I have generations upon generations of slavery induced trauma. And now like, I just can't live like functionally. Maybe, maybe there's an element of resilience that can be inherited as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and just remembering that I think it gives me energy and joy. And I do want to tell the, like, I try to make sure that the community and society at large knows like, these are just the data. Mm-hmm. It could mean something bad. It could mean something amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're in the process of figuring that out. Yeah. That's so good. Such Can I just add to point. that too? I think uh, so beautifully said, you know, and one of the things I want to make sure that I get in and always try to, when I talk about this, this is the latest work that I think is so exciting is that if you take the same fathers, you traumatize them to the cherry, but then you extinguish them. You essentially give them exposure therapy, just like we do for people with PTSD. Mm-hmm. And then you um, make them the offspring look just like nothing ever happened. Mm-hmm. So what this suggests is that all of these processes are plastic. And if we know the right way to intervene and the way to help further build mm-hmm. resilience, that these are plastic, they're not fate. And that's, I think, really important. Yeah, really important points. And beautiful segue too, because one of the things that often we try and talk about on the Addy Hour, so as me as a basic neuroscientist, obviously, like you, I'm very focused on the processes in the brain that are contributing to these challenges and to also to resilience as well. But then I also try hard not to talk about these things only in a bubble. So thinking about all the other components that contribute to emotional wellness and to mental health challenges and to coming through those mental health challenges. So thinking about spiritual components, you know, the social justice racism, all the different interventions we have, whether that be psychological interventions, prayer, meditation, how all these things impinge. Um, so I think it's always good for us to have, as you both mentioned, that focus. But I'm curious, but you've both talked about this already, and Carrie, even with that last data, how do you see all of those different types of processes being important in terms of how we think about mental health in general, both from what you've seen in your data and from a broader societal perspective? I realize that's a huge question, but I'd love to hear <laughs> Your thoughts on both of those, uh, Bianca, if you want to start. Yes, I, I want, uh, I shouldn't say I want, right? Because we're following the data. And what I believe is that biology has a setup for success, not for failure. Mm-hmm. 
and any aspects that we're inheriting or any epigenetic component really in the proper framework is for us to succeed in that environment not to fail like 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 evolution doesn't want us to just crash and burn because it doesn't have a job like we talked about <laughs> having a job you can always tell pre-tenure someone's like good job um yeah and so with, with that being said like it's it I, I i think that's the case like that biology will always look out for us that our brains and our bodies and the adaptations that it goes through will always look out for us and so if we have the inkling to rest, we probably need to do that. Mm. If we have the inkling, whatever that rest looks like to you, to pray, to take a second to read, <laughs> to hang out with your, whatever that inkling is, I suggest following that. And that's what I do in my life because I mm. trust what my body's saying mm. um, because, because humans haven't been around for this long and we haven't knocked ourselves off the planet yet. And so it's, there's gotta be something there I should be listening to. Mm. That's so well said. And still a lot to unpack as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In terms of how all that impacts our brains and moves us forward. What about you, Carrie? Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think, you know, I think, in, you know, to, to anthropomorphize a bit, but try to understand that, you know, the, the reason why this might happen, you know, we think about if a, if a mouse grew up in one part from parent, you know, they might have the, enough smell systems to be able to smell 10,000 different odors, but there may only be 50 or 100 that really matter for the last couple of generations of where the parents lived for both where the food were and where the prey was. And if you could be predisposed to be more sensitive to those, that would be really good. You know, so we don't know what exactly that means in humans. And I think everything you said is, is, is right on. I think for how I think about some of these things as a psychiatrist is that it reminds me that, you know, one of the take-home tenets of psychiatry is that our emotional responses are not always what we think they are. <laughs> and they're not always what we consciously want. They're what our by our brain, because of our DNA, our epigenetics, and our, our lifetime experiences emotionally have us respond to. And sometimes that's really helpful, that gut. And other times it can keep getting us stuck in a rut of behaviors that we may not want. And I think this is one more place where as we continue to you know, learn more about the human condition and learn how we can all help ourselves and help each other. It's figuring out what, what things are we responding to because that's where we are in the present and that's what we want versus when are we responding to the past and maybe we don't know it. Mm. Yeah, so well said as well. There's so many, so many topics that you all are pulling out. I know we're running close to the end of our time. Mm -hmm. uh, may have to have both of you back at some point. One thing that I did want to mention though, yeah. and we didn't talk about as much, but it's just a the theme of community as well. So Bianca, I know that's something that's come through your work in a lot of ways. Um, and Carrie, as you're talking, I, I sense that that's there as well, even in terms of what you've done in the Grady Project. Um, and one of the things that I often, that we've been talking about on this podcast, and we'll probably talk about more in the future, is just the effects of community. So we're talking about a lot of the effects of trauma on the brain, but the effects of community on the brain. I mean, that ties back again to some of the oxytocin work. I'll yeah. probably try and have Larry Young on at some point as well. I haven't told him that yet, so maybe he'll hear that through this. Uh, but I think, it, you know, just the importance of that community component and how that intersects on so many levels with the processes in the brain that you've both been studying for, for years. And then some of these just inherent gut feelings that we have as human beings as we interact. I mean, we do, uh, again, as a neuroscientist, I like to focus on the brain, but some of these things we can really just feel in ourselves, yeah. even as we've lost some of that with all the Zoom conversations. Um, so I did want to mention that and just say that I think that's another just key component. And getting back to what Bianca said about the biology is there to protect us in a way. And some of that, I think, is through community. And obviously, there's a lot of research that backs that up as well. 
Wow. But again, there's so much, I feel like this conversation could have gone for many, many more hours. Uh, Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's lots of data that for your next topic, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know both, both in, in Bianca and our young and Tom Enzo and others work on oxytocin and community. And then, you know, work by many's, including some of our work showing that community cohesion buffers childhood trauma on the effects of adult PTSD. And that, you know, one of the biggest supporting factors that matters, no matter how bad your life is, if you have, you know, one or two strong adults who are there supporting you and you have that support systems that can buffer so much difficulty. And so I think whether that's through church, whether that's through the local Y, whether it's through the coach or whatever, that community is so critical for survival and for, for, for resilience and, and being strong. Yeah. So important. So important. It's wow. the greater brain network of community. You know, we have our brain and it's connected to different neurons, but we don't live individually. We as mm. human, like, mm. so like oxytocin is there and it's, yeah. it's a bigger global brain. I think that yeah. we can't forget about. Yeah. Well, well, you're both leaving me hungry for more. I imagine that our listeners are feeling the same Gotta way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you'd both be willing, I definitely would love to have you back and continue this conversation. But again, just really well, grateful to both of you for being willing to jump on early in this Addy Hour uh, in initiative that we're, we're getting off the ground here. I think the, these conversations have been great and there's so much I think that's going to really be, be uh, important for our listeners and things that people can really grab onto. So Appreciate both of you, both uh, Dr. Bianca Jones-Marlin and Dr. Carrie Ressler for jumping on the Addy Hour today. Uh, this has been just, yeah, I know I'm going to be, I'm already still thinking through everything that you've, you've brought up. There's so much more to chew on, but grateful for the, for the chance to, for both of you to be here and contribute this way. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting and having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Nia and Bianca. Great to see you. Really fun conversation. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. 